Welcome to PCA One-on-One, Positive Coaching Alliance's podcast series where we talk with leading experts about how to develop better athletes, better people through sports. And now here's your host, Tina Sire, PCA Chief Impact Officer. AJ, I want to start off by introducing you to our Positive Coaching Alliance audience. AJ Hinch grew up in Iowa and Oklahoma. After being drafted in the second round coming out of high school, AJ chose to attend Stanford University, where he graduated with a degree in psychology. After his senior season, AJ was drafted in the third round by the Oakland Athletics. During AJ's eight seasons as a player, he played for the Oakland A's, the Kansas City Royals, the Detroit Tigers, and the Philadelphia Phillies. In his post-playing career, AJ managed the Arizona Diamondbacks, and he currently manages the Houston Astros. AJ, thanks for joining the Positive Coaching Alliance audience and me today. Thank you. Happy to be here. So I'm curious, when you were growing up, um, did you play multiple sports, and when did the time come when you decided it was time to specialize in baseball? Uh, I did. You know, I, I thought my, my parents, uh, you know, believed in, in, in providing as many opportunities as we could to play a lot of different sports. Uh, I was into music. I was into sports. Uh, we did drama. We did every, every activity uh, known, known to man. We, we tried and, and, you know, obviously interest started to, to specify, you know, as I got older, um, but I played three sports, football, basketball, and baseball up until high school. Uh, and then at that point, you know, I grew up in Oklahoma, so you're not going to give up football very easily uh, mm-hmm. in the Midwest, but, but in, in football and baseball became more of a priority for me. Um, all the way up until my, my senior year, I played, I played both sports all the way through my senior year in high school and considered playing in, in football in college. But I, um, you know, once, once the, you know, my skills, my exposure, things started to get a little bit more serious about, uh, college and, and professional baseball, um, I became a little bit more fixated on, on that sport and less, uh, less about the other sports. But I, I am a believer in, in exposing, you know, young athletes to as many things as possible, um, even though I know the trend has started to shift towards, you know, these year-round specializations. What do you think about that trend? You know, at PCA we get a lot of questions about that when we're doing workshops, parents who come up and ask, when is the right time, you know, for my son or my daughter to specialize in a given sport? Um, What what are your thoughts on that, about that trend on earlier and earlier specialization? Yeah, I think it's hard. I, I think we 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 want our our children to feel successful. We want them to have passion. We want them to to get fulfillment in everything they do. But we also want them to teach them that there there aren't any limitations. That they should try new things and play new sports and and expose themselves to as much as possible. And and so it is a tough balance that we have to strike. On on you know I know with my own kids, I want I want them to 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 be passionate about a sport. Um, maybe without being married to it too early. Uh, I think you learn a lot in the, in the different sports um, that you're introduced to, and, and whether it's individual sports like golf and tennis or team sports like soccer and basketball and football, baseball, those are, those are all questions I think you have to know your child. You have to know uh, their strengths and weaknesses. And, and when there's an overwhelming passion for something, I certainly wouldn't want to stunt that. Uh, yeah. But at the same time, you can't force – uh, our own uh, desires and our own thoughts about our kids onto those kids. If they don't, if they don't love the sport, if they don't love the practice part of the sport, if they're not driven to be uh, the best that they can be, then then we're probably doing them a disservice by limiting them. Yep. 
Yep. So, AJ, I know you've got two daughters um, who are now 13 and 11, and I'm curious, when you think about the kind of coach um, that you hope they have, whether that's in tennis or soccer or another sport, um, what do you sort of view as the perfect youth sports coach that you'd like working with your kids? Uh, well, I, I like I like the coaches that um, – I like positive coaches, but I, I like constructive coaches. You know, I think a lot of times when we talk about positive influences in our in our kids' lives and in, in coaching – um, it's not always about giving them, you know, the, the pat on the back. It is about being constructive. It is about, uh, you know, challenging their mind, their body, their, their, uh, you know, their athletic ability, things like that. So I, it's, it's finding the right influence that, that, that balances like a competitive spirit with, um, some positivity with also pushing our, our kids to, to, to handle failure, to deal with adversity, to, uh, sort of fight for their playing time a little bit in various sports and and um, so so more than anything, if I was going to describe the coach that I want, I want a fair, balanced uh, coach that has you know best interest of of my kids and other kids uh, at the forefront of their mind. Yeah, um, when you look back on your career, you've had the opportunity to play for so many different coaches, and I know in particular. Um, like you, I was a Stanford undergraduate, and you can't be at Stanford without knowing about Mark Marquis, who's the baseball coach there, going into his unbelievably his 40th season. And I'm curious, you know, what it was like playing for him, and what coaching lessons, and you know, now in lessons you've taken into managing, what you've taken from him, and then any other coaches in your history that you've either played for or even coached with that have really shaped the way that you manage. Sure. So one of one of the the best parts, I guess, of of my career you know, from, from my amateur days to my professional days has been being a journeyman, sort of traveling through four or five different organizations. I've had a number of jobs and managed a couple places now. So I've been around a lot of coaches. I've, I've had different styles. I've had the, the old school, hard-nosed, uh, very, very difficult personality type of coach. I've had uh, maybe the more positive, uh, feel-good coach. I've had somewhere in between. So I you know, and, and Mark Marquis is a huge influence in my life. He became a second father figure for me uh, at a time where I really needed it in my college days. And, and, you know, for him to last 40 years, I think one one lesson you learn from him is how coaches evolve over time. You know, I've always said to myself, when I when I embarked in the coaching department and managing major league team, if I'm if I'm managing the same way 10 years from now that I'm managing today, then I've probably not evolved enough. I've probably not learned enough. Yep. I've probably not investigated on better ways and more efficient ways to reach players enough. So, and I think Marquis has done a good job of evolving over the years while keeping his core principles and his his traditions um, in sort of old school mentality intact. He hasn't like sold out his integrity for the sake of of sort of new ways of doing things. And I, if you can strike that balance, you can last a long time in 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 our sports. And and I, and I think. You know, when I when I think back of positive influences for me that that have touched my career, uh, they aren't all one flavor. They aren't just the yeah. guys that made me feel good. They aren't just guys that that gave me constructive criticism. They are a blend of all of that that challenged me in different ways. They found different ways to to tap into my intelligence, to tap into my athleticism, to tap into sort of my fear of failure to tap into to my my drive to be excellent and those you know I think of Charlie Manuel I think of Gene Lamont I had Tony Pena in Kansas City who who English was his second language and he found a way you know to reach me 
Um, you know, Art Howe was my first manager in baseball, and he was like the fatherly figure. I didn't want to, I didn't want to disappoint him. So I, I, I tried harder and worked harder to, to try to appease to him like, like you would a parent. And I think yeah. those, those different entities in, in, in these men that, that, that touched my career, um, you know, I, I always felt like I've taken something away from these coaches and that, that I can apply to how I reach players here with the Houston Astros. I have a, a group of Venezuelan players. I have a Cuban player. I have uh, some kids from the inner city. I have kids that grew up in more prestigious neighborhoods throughout the country. I've got to find a way to reach every one of those guys. And so I tap into different, different people that touch my life. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you, I mean, you got your first opportunity to manage when you're only 34 years old, um, which is pretty incredible to be managing at that level at that age. And, you know, now seven years later, um, how would you say you've evolved as a manager from when you first um, took the reins of the Diamondbacks at age 34 and now to your time with the Astros? Um, how's your management changed and how have you evolved? Well, at 34, I, I probably didn't know what I didn't know. Um, I mm-hmm. was, mm-hmm. I, I learned over time, you know, at 34 years old, similar to how I'm, I'm reaching the teenage years with my kids and they, they sort of know everything right now. They're, they're, they, they've learned life already. <laughs> they've got it all figured out for them. So I was probably that guy as a 34-year-old manager because I, you so desperately want to show them, the players and the media and the fans, how much you know, how much you can, how much of a baseball expert you are. And, and, and yeah. you, you lose the leadership component of how to delegate and how to, uh, how to impact different players. And, and so yeah. for me, I, I learned a lot about myself and, and what did I needed to do, some of my blind spots in, in how to be an effective leader, um, mm-hmm. you know, by trying and failing at 34 years old. And, and I didn't do everything wrong as a 34-year-old manager. I had a lot of good things going as well. But you're taught a lot of lessons through the, you know, through the professional ranks, you know, when you get a job like that. And, and so for me, I, I think the, um, the, the understanding of, of the difference between leadership um, and, and, and maybe being a teammate. You know, I gave a, you know, I, I built this one speech up once when I was, when I was a 34-year-old manager and, and my message to them is what is they needed me more as a teammate than they needed me as a manager. And looking back at that speech that I gave when we had lost three or four games straight and we were in the heat of the battle of, of the National League West, I, I realized what I was telling them was more about me. I wanted to be their teammate more than I wanted to be their leader. And, and that wasn't an effective way of, uh, of getting the most out of them. I think, I think one of the attributes of a coach at any level, be it amateur, professional, uh, at the highest level where we're at, I had Olympic coaches when I played in the Olympics. Like, th- your job is to get the most out of your players for them, not for you. Right. And that lesson is learned uh, through experience, through trial and error, and, and ultimately through selflessness when you're, when, you're, when you're bestowed the responsibility of being a coach. Yeah. Um, AJ, I really like that, get get the most out of players for them, um, not for you. You know, certainly at the high school and the youth level, um, a lot, the vast majority of these coaches um, are working with athletes who won't go pro, and it won't be that baseball is their career. Um, what are those things that you think high school coaches, youth coaches, um, are teaching their players that transcend the playing field. So even when they're not playing sure. baseball anymore, the lessons they learned that are going to help them in the workplace or in college or with their family later. No, I mean, they're life lessons that, that are, that are hard to find, uh, anywhere other than the sporting venue. You know, I think the, being a good teammate, 
uh, is helpful in marriage. Being a good teammate is helpful in a in a work environment. You know, I remember riding the buses when I was in the minor leagues, and and um, you know, I, I found myself for the first time. I grew up in Middle America in Oklahoma, born in Iowa, raised in the Midwest, and for the first time, there were there were guys from Latin America that were on the back of the bus playing loud salsa music, and they're and they're speaking in their own native tongue. And you know, you got to be a good teammate to to understand the different cultures as a young player. And and I think that goes back to my days in high school when when Chuck White, who was one of my high school coaches in Midwest City, Oklahoma, was adamant about being a good teammate for all of us. We were going to be good teammates to one another. We don't have to be best friends. We don't have to hang out on the weekends. We don't have to you know, go to prom together when we were in high school. But what we do have to do is be a good teammate if you're going to be on his yeah. team. And yep. and those those lessons, you know, I've worked in offices. I've worked in, in, in various capacities in, in life. I have a, a fantastic marriage of 15 years. That those, that being able to rely on somebody, being able to, to delegate to somebody, being able to, you know, ask for advice, ask for permission, um, yep. have the greater good be the be the the focus rather than maybe a selfish um a selfish you know success story those those are things that that when you're when you're in youth sports when you show up and wear a common uniform with nine or ten or twelve or fifteen other boys and girls um you know you you learn that later when you're uh when you're our age now and you've got a little bit of life experience under you that um, you know, being a, being a teammate shows up in all aspects of life. Yep, yep. Well, AJ, it's been really amazing to see, you know, what the Astros did this past season, and I think sort of the culture you're trying to shape there is really paying off also on the scoreboard. And I'm curious if you could talk to our audience briefly about what is, if you had to describe that environment you're trying to create within your organization, um, what is that environment? And um, obviously there's a link to performing well, and why does that right. kind of environment you're trying to shape result in, in good play on the field? Well, I think two words that come to mind immediately are culture and mindset. And culture mm-hmm. for me, and, and this goes in any level um, in, you know, of sports, is when you provide an environment where practice pregame, the games um, are the most important parts of the day, and everybody is excited to show up and and work to a common goal. That That is a culture that, that people want to be a part of. And, and I don't yep. care if you're coaching eight-year-old, uh, you know, little leaguers or if you're coaching, you know, 27-year-old multimillionaires like I do. It is <laughs> a culture where these guys, when they show up to, to the ballpark, um, they're excited to be here. They're open-minded. Yep. They they want to um, they want to get better incrementally towards towards the common good of the team. Um, yep. Those are that's a culture that 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 stands the test of time over 162 game season at the level that I'm at. The mindset yep. part of it, it it goes to the individual athlete. And and in our sport, we have to find a way to individually push these guys within a team concept. And it's that's hard yep. because they you, yep. you want. You want the guy to hit the ball to the right side with a runner on second in baseball to advance the runner. That his batting average goes down, but his run production goes up. You right. know, getting the right mindset for our players to 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 compete um, to 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 try to win tonight's game uh, is something that we were able to establish. You know, inside our clubhouse, and and you know, I think when you're when you're trying to reach athletes, they they all are. are adapt to that in different ways. You know, I have Dallas Keuchel, who's our, our best starting pitcher 
is an ultra-competitive, intense, wears a mouth guard, grinds his teeth, really focused type of competitor, reaching him is different than reaching a free-spirited Jose Altuve, lighthearted, doesn't love to be yelled at, doesn't really want to be pushed too hard, but you got to push him enough. Um, yep. Those are personality traits as a coach that I'm paid to tap into with the, with the idea that my job is to unlock the key to every one of these, these men that, that gets the most out of them. Yeah. Well, um, I was really excited to read some quotes um, from Carlos Correa, who was recently named the AL Rookie of the Year, um, your shortstop. And I think one of the things he said is when he first um, walked into your office, was first getting to know you, you told him, your best is going to be good enough for us. And I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about coaching Carlos and just, um, you know, the the performance he had this season and that quote you had, um, your best is going to be good enough for us. Yeah, no, I, I, and Carlos is a terrific athlete. He was 20 years old when he arrived on the, on the national scene um, in the major leagues. And, and, you know, I think one of the things, you know, that, I'm, that, I, that I try to do with our guys is instill confidence in them. And belief goes a long way, whether you're, again, whether you're handling young athletes to older athletes. Uh, it's amazing how confidence wavers regardless uh, of, of what athlete you're dealing with. And, and our job, or my job as a coach, was to was to instill that confidence in him. I believe in him before he believes in himself, and and I and and I wanted to make sure that he understood that all we expected was his best, and whatever yeah. his best is any given night is going to be good enough. And and you know I am a process oriented type of guy. In baseball, you have to be very very careful not to not to focus too much on the results because a a, a player can go out and go one for four. And, and feel like a failure uh, when in actuality his process was perfect throughout the throughout the night um, yeah. and he only got one hit. And so with Carlos, when he got to the big leagues and he had the, the, the accolades of being the number one pick, he had a lot of pressure on him, he was supposed to be the savior for our team, uh, I wanted to make sure that he understood the standards that I, that I had for him were just to be his best. And whatever his best was, I was going to accept because I, I can't ask for anything more than that. And and I'm proud that, you know, I read that quote. Uh, it was sent to me, you know, from our people here in Houston, and 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 I didn't know that it impacted him that much. I didn't know that he grabbed that out of, you know, a three or four or five minute meeting with him on on shaking his hand and welcoming him to the big leagues. But I think yeah. it's a lesson for me to understand how much these players absorb from their leadership to to yeah. to instill that kind of belief from the beginning that that his best is good enough. How could I ask for anything more than his best? That's all you can give. Yep, fantastic. Um, I think, you know, one of those things you talk about instilling confidence in players, um, you know, I've certainly noticed that so many really successful major league managers were catchers. Um, you know, I'm here in the Bay Area, and I look at Bruce Bochy and, you know, how successful he's been recently with the Giants and look at Joe Torre and Mike Matheny and you. And there are just so many where I, I'm starting to wonder if there's something about being a catcher mm-hmm. and the way you see the game and the way you interact with your pitcher um, that it, it leads people, um, you know, later to be in that position of manager and leader. And um, I'm hoping you could talk for a little bit about, um, you know, rewind back to when you were a player and a catcher. Um, what did you do in that role to help your your pitchers settle down and to get the best performance out of your pitchers? No, it, it is a trend that's that's sort of taken over our sport. You know, you get an uptick when you interview for a job and you're an ex-catcher. 
I think you get grandfathered into this idea that that uh, that you're going to be the the next Joe Torre or Mike Sosha or like you said Bruce Bochy and and I think yeah. I think part of it is we we handle as a catcher you handle all aspects of the game and that it's something for a coach I think to have to learn you know if you're a football coach and you were a quarterback like how much do you know about defensive line linebackers defensive back or if you were yeah. you know if you're in in soccer and you were a forward. Um, how much you know about goaltending, or how much do you know about yep. the you know the, the the defense part of the game? So, from from the catching perspective, we're, we we have an advantage given that we you know as offensive players we understand, as defensive players we understand, and then you handling pitchers, which is a critical element of being a major league manager. I think we we have a you know those experiences on the mound when fifty thousand fans at Yankee Stadium and and you've got a young pitcher and you go out to visit them and it's a two zero count on Derek Jeter. You know, I have experiences to pull back from my playing days saying, you know, instilling belief in, in having a game plan, being a leader, and, and again, trying to trying to believe in the pitcher before he believes in himself and having that conviction uh, was, is very important. And I, and I think the, the, the way you handle pitchers is, is no different than the way you handle you know, any athlete, which is you have to know them. You have to know what buttons to push. You have to know – you know what kids can be pushed with aggressiveness what what players can be pushed with uh maybe a little bit you know of a of a massage how many players can be pushed with uh by ignoring them some guys get some guys if you ignore them as a catcher and you just you pay no attention to them that fuels their fire as well so i i think it speaks to to trying to figure out the the what unlocks each of these guys uh to their optimum performance and you know with catchers we we have the most experience with that over the vast majority of the game, and I think that's why opportunities are provided to us more often. Yep. I think um, one of the things about baseball, and you've mentioned it before, is that there is a lot of failure in baseball. And players who are able to deal with that failure and you know, a positive coaching alliance, we talk about having a short memory or the ability to focus forward, not ruminate on a mistake. Um, were there things or tools that you used with pitchers? You know, maybe they, you know, they gave up a hit or they gave up a walk and they're, you know, beating themselves up over it when you're going out to the mound. Um, are there tools you use as a manager, you use as a catcher um, to help pitchers or, or any player sort of have a short memory and focus forward? Well, I think one thing that I, that I know is, is very um, important, I think, distinction, and, and I'm not sure which side of the fence guy or coaches are generally on, but uh, a lot of times when I was when I was raised, I had a big fear of failure. And and mm. now I at the time growing up, I didn't really understand what failure meant. I think failure to me was getting out in baseball, or failure to me was an incompletion in football, or it was a missed free throw in basketball. And in in a lot of ways, I was I had coaches, some coaches that would tell me, you know, you're an exceptional athlete, you should never feel failure. Fear failure. Um, the reality is, all athletes feel, fear that failure, and they should. Yep. Failure is terrible. Yep. And it doesn't feel good. It's not something that we set out to do. And so I think if you embrace the idea of why you're, why that failure exists, um, you've got to shift their mindset to worry about the process and worry about things that they can control. In 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 my career, um, I never let a pitcher focus on the result. If he gave up a hit or he gave up a home run, um, I focused on what did, did he execute the pitch. And if he can't yeah. say that he executed the pitch. I don't want to talk about the result. The result doesn't matter. I don't know if you throw a down and away fastball and it leaks to the middle part of the plate 
and Miguel Cabrera hits the ball to the second deck, how can I argue you failed when you didn't execute the right pitch at the right time to the right hitter? And so I yeah. I think it just shifts the mindset away from the result being the the reason that I call it failure and more about what was it in my delivery that didn't allow me to execute the pitch or was it the right choice of pitch? I should have thrown a curveball or yeah. I should have thrown a changeup. Um and I, I guess in in some ways it's a it's a it's a play on words and it's a little bit of a uh, some mind psychology, trying to get them not to not to be fixated on the on the result, because in our sport, you know, where where guys hit 330 nowadays in their in their you know potential MVP candidates, that's still seven times out of ten where you're you're not having success. Or if you you know if you yeah. give up a number of hits, I mean, our our best pitcher had a two and a half ERA. He's still giving up a boatload of runs throughout the year. That doesn't mean he's right. failing. So I. You know, I think the, the the strategy is to is to really get the athlete to focus on what he can control and not uh, what other guys can control. At my level, I get a chance to to sort of like these guys are paid to hit home runs. They're paid. Mike Trout is gonna is gonna tear Buster Posey is gonna terrorize the ball. Um, yeah. There's a little bit of a of a small margin of of uh, success failure that goes on. But even the best of the best have a hard time with dominating a sport uh, at this level. And that, that, to me, signals that it's way more about the process and much less about uh, necessarily the net result. So I think another, um, besides like sort of the execution of a certain pitch, I think about what's a good at bat. And I'm curious what advice you would give youth coaches about how they could talk to their athletes about whether or not they had a good at bat um, where I think for so many people it's just did they get on base, you know, did they, you know, did they get an RBI? Right. It's, it's very scoreboard, you know, oriented. How would you describe a good at-bat, and then how would you encourage youth coaches to talk to their players about a good at-bat? Yeah, it's hard because I, I think what, what happens is no matter what we tell our players is if you line out to shortstop, it never feels like a good at-bat. It's an out. Right. And I'm turning and right. I'm going to the dugout and I'm putting my helmet away. I'm taking my batting yeah. gloves off and I'm angry. And so I, I yeah. think it's you know on the on the flip side of that if I if I bloop in a base hit behind second base in front of the right fielder or the first baseman's colliding and and I stand at first base I feel like a million bucks and I did my job right. I got a base hit and so I, I I think it's hard to you know it's hard to it's hard to avoid that that's just a reality of when I get a hit I feel like it's a good at bat when I get out I feel right. like it's a bad at bat now the right. the the to me a good at bat. To, with athletes of any age, I would say, you know, did you get a good pitch to hit and did you recognize the pitch? And obviously, mm-hmm. as you get older, it's about recognizing fastball versus slider or changeup or curveball or whatever. A little younger, yeah. it's not, it's not, you know, it doesn't work for t-ball. It's not going to work for maybe the first level of coach pitch uh, right. or, or player pitch. But did I get a good pitch to hit and did I put a good swing on it? I mean, those are th- that's all I can control. I can't control a lot of what happens. I can't control the center fielder racing to left center field the way that, that, that Carlos Gomez or Jake Marisnik, my guys do and robbing a hit. That's not, that's out of my control. Did I get a good pitch to hit? Did I put a good swing on it? And did I recognize the pitch that, that to me is what the, what defines a good at bat now, because if I, if I stop it, did I get a good pitch? I swung over at a ball over my head. It doesn't matter what the result is. I didn't, I didn't set out. I didn't do what I set out to do which is get a good pitch to hit. And and a good at bat, you know, we have these debates in our coaches' rooms all the time. Is there a strikeout that's a quality at bat? And the answer is probably yes, 
even though you're not going right. to convince an, a hitter to say, yeah, I, 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 you know, like a World Series at bat that was 11 pitches and I struck out, you know, right. you're not going to get a lot of high fives. Uh, or you're not going to want the high five. You'll probably get it from your coach, right. and you extended the pitching yeah. count, and you, and you right. did a lot of positive things. But I don't want to hear that. I want, I want, I want to hit. That's what I want to do. Hitters want to hit. Yep. And so I, I think the, the encouragement comes from, you know, having a good plan and executing that plan, and then you have to deal with the results, good or bad, um, regardless mm-hmm. of what happens. And, and it's it's why baseball is one of the most mentally grueling sports, you know, out there, along with with golf along with with you know tennis and some of the the really fine-tuned things that you don't control everything in our sport you know that that allows for success but um if you can define that on the front end before um you know the the batting averages come out before the all-star teams come out before the uh maybe the mom or dad that's keeping the team statistics is sending it around via email nowadays like that to me is like getting their mindset to understand you can have success and a lot of times you're going to get the results you want and sometimes you're not, but I'm fixated on, on repeating my process as often as possible, you know, during the season, I think you'll win at at the end. You'll win over the course of an entire season. Yep. Excellent. Um, I'm curious, AJ, you mentioned, you know, some of your stops um, in in the big leagues where you weren't necessarily a manager, you know, with the Diamondbacks managing the minor league operations and being the director of player development and scouting for the Padres. Um, Can you share with our audience a little bit about what you were looking for in players in those different roles and how much did some of this mentality of the ability to focus on what a player could control, you know, were you looking for in a player and Mm -hmm. um, that side of things like the mental side, um, not just the physical side. It is. And and then different roles are different. When I, when I was in director of player development, I got to know the players uh, a lot better than you do when, when I ran the scouting department, you know, in, in San Diego, it's a little less personal and you're, yep. you're viewing, you know, the scouts are, are generally looking at physical tools. They're looking at how you do, you know, bat speed and, and power and running speed and arm strength and your defensive uh, flexibility and things like that. So I, I think it's, it's, it's a little bit more of a, of a, um, the scouting sense is a little bit more tools and, and, and the things, how they, how they relate to the game. I think when you're talking about player development, then you insert the scouting part plus the application of, of, you know, the mental aspects of the game, the makeup, um, the, the, you know, sort of fortitude um, for each player and trying to maximize his potential. And, and I, and I think, you know, I, I enjoyed seeing the players, you know, you view pl- players from different ways based on your job description. I mean, as a manager, you know, I have just a touch of a distant relationship to the players compared to the hitting coach. The hitting coach sees the raw player in the cage, distraught over being one for his last 19, you know, right. or on the flip side, our pitching coach sees the, you know, our potential Cy Young Award winner, Dallas Keuchel, who's dominating the league and is as confident in his practice as any player I've ever been around. So I, you, you deal with different spectrums based on your, on your job. And, and for me, I always looked for – the makeup was always important. The, and it's not just try-hard makeup. It's not just guys that put in the hours. Um, there, there's an application to, to you know, how we, how we combine the physical attributes, talents that we've been given, how we've nurtured those – 
and then and then ultimately how we compete and how we view the how we view ourselves and how we view the sport. And I think that when you when you look at all those, you you, you know, when you're dealing with professional athletes, you can't slip in too many of those categories. You're looking for elite across the board, and those are the guys that. Yep. They get through the minor leagues. They get into the big leagues. They they establish themselves as longtime major leaguers because they're elite at at virtually all of those categories. They may not have the best arm, but they they don't they don't they can they can obviously throw. Or they may not have the best speed, but they're applicable for their situation for their position they play. And I think yep. I think when when um, that doesn't mean you need perfect players. You know, if you're a parent of a of a, of a kid who who is a, a college or professionally or being recruited by colleges or going professionally, it doesn't need to be perfect. You need to be your best at those levels, and then and then you get factored in based on you know the big talent pool in the universe and and where that where that's going to be. But 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 you won't reach uh, you know the highest spot you can get if you don't bring your best. Yep. One of the things that we encourage high school athletes to be is something we've we've coined as a triple impact competitor that um you know makes himself better but also makes his teammates better and actually leaves the sport better than he found it so sort of improving himself his teammates in the game and um I think at the high school level people are pretty self-focused you know and really wanting to get the best and and maybe they're working out extra or watching video you know going to extra camps um, maybe they even have, you know, a special hitting coach outside of their team. Um, so there's a lot of focus on sort of individual improvement. And I'm curious if there are any players, again, that were teammates of yours or maybe that you're coaching now that you feel like really raise the game not just for themselves but for their teammates and um, the sport as a whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that that type of impact, um, well, first off, it's hard to find. I mean, I, I think we have one in Carlos Correa here. Uh, and Jose Altuve, both are exceptional. They play up the middle for us, which is which is premium position in baseball, and 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 their presence means a lot to the team. I think I think more not so much about individual players as much as the attributes these guys they, that they that they showcase are consistency. Uh, they're not volatile guys that that show up some days and don't show up other days mentally and physically. They're not guys that. Yeah. Um, there's a stability to, the, to these type of players. You know, we had Jason Giambi when I was in Oakland. Um, yeah. We had Mike Sweeney in Kansas City. Um, you know, Trevor Hoffman was that guy in San Diego where there was a reliability and a consistency every day when they showed up to, to the game uh, or to the clubhouse that they were going to deposit, you know, good vibes, good good presence, good energy into, onto the team and not – not withdraw too much from it, and and I yep. felt like that those attributes uh, are things that you you know they're hard to teach. They're not that hard to recognize because we all it's not the popular kid. It's not the one who who everybody gravitates to. It's actually the ones that that actually influence behavior. You know where uh, the most powerful thing I think we can do as coaches is create uh, you know a fairness in the in the in the clubhouse or on our teams. Uh, to where they, they don't just feel like they're playing for the coach, they feel like they're playing for each other. And that's yep. the definition of a team for us. And, and you know, we do it in the, at the major league level. So if you're doing it at the major league level, why wouldn't you do it at the little league level or the, the pony league level or the, the high school level? And, you know, those players often gravitate to the top. Those, those players often, you know, sort of, sort of reach the pinnacle of, of each team and, then they get identified as a leader, and then they get their college scholarship, or then they turn pro. 
but they all have that common characteristic uh, of, 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 of consistency in, in how they go about their business, their drive, their passion. Um, some are vocal, some aren't vocal, uh, but, but they're awfully consistent. Yeah. Well, AJ, I just want to ask you one more question. Um, you know, one of the things that Positive Coaching Alliance is really trying to do is share lessons from psychology, you know, sports psychology with coaches and parents and athletes to both help them perform better and also just enjoy the sports experience more and to really glean all those life lessons from sports. And um, I know you were a psych major uh, back at Stanford, and I'm curious if you feel like that impacted the way that you approach the game as a player and now um, the way you manage. It does every day, um, and it did as a player. It did as a, as a as a it does as a manager, um, because I think I think sports. Um, there's a physical aspect of sports that we can't get away from. It's a grind. It's, it's some some sports are more physically told and tolling than others, um, but but I believe in 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 the psychology part of sport. Um, there's something inside all of us that are drawn to sports. Um, that have a will to win, that have a little bit of fear of failure, that have um, you know how we how we deal um, with competition that 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 each of us have to define for each other on, on your own on your own time, and and so for me as I've as I've handled you know um, you know the the challenge of uh, you know I had a had a very good amateur career I got signed as a as a professional I go on to a um, you know, a, a playing career in the big leagues. And all along the way, um, there were coaches that told me that I could do it. There were coaches that, uh, that doubted me. Uh, but most importantly, the psychology part that I learned from Stanford is it is very focused on, on what I can get out of myself and how I, how I think, how I respond to failure. How do I respond to, uh, to the challenges that are put ahead of me in sports? And, and, you know, I, it's hard. It's not in a book. It's not something that um, that that you can necessarily articulate easily. But there, there's a there's a, a ton of of sports psychology in our sport and how we nurture our minds that get, to get the most out of us physically. And that's the definition of sport for me. And 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 yeah. trying to trying to make sure that that we provide an environment that 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 challenges. Uh, our players to be their best in in uh, my time at Stanford, my time as a as a player, and now my time as a manager. Um, that that all of that in in one big cloud of of how do I get the most out of myself is something I remember. Yeah. Well, AJ, thanks so much for spending this time uh, with me today, and I know all of our listeners. Um, we'll really appreciate hearing from you and learning from you, and we're going to be really rooting for you guys hard uh, next season with the Astros and following your managing career and looking up to you as a role model. So thank you so much. Thank you. No, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us on this episode of PCA One-on-One. Be sure to visit PositiveCoach.org to download more podcasts.